Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the VCM Quick Strike for Monday, July 11th, 2022. You may be aware of the Rogers Telecommunications network outage late last week. There was certainly a lot of press on that, and it's still an unfolding situation. Coming to us from Reuters is an article from a couple of days ago while it was still going on, noting that there were a lot of cases where Quote, Canadians crowded into cafes and public libraries that still had internet access and hovered outside hotels to catch a signal. Canada's Border Services Agency said the outage affected its mobile app for incoming travelers. Retailers' cashless pay systems went down. Banks reported issues with ATM services. And then there were some shops and restaurants in the Toronto area that actually put cash-only signs on their doors because obviously they couldn't take electronic payments. So I bring this to your attention to think about your business continuity plans, what would you do if your business suddenly lost internet access? Say, if you're a retailer, for example, how would you take payments? Would you have enough cash on hand to be able to make change? Those sorts of things are critical to try to understand when these things happen and to test for them beforehand. Now, as this event has gone on, some have made speculations, and actually, my first thought was this was probably a BGP routing pro uh, problem, and that seems to actually have been the case. So maybe I win some sort of a prize out there. Cloudflare, excuse me, Cloudflare has been keeping up on this, and I included that link in the show notes as well, too, as far as their analysis of the situation, and they've updated it a few times since, including recently... As recently as July 9th at 9 o'clock UTC, the traffic seems to be climbing back up to usual levels for the past eight hours. Cloudflare's data shows that Saturday, July 9th at 8.40 UTC, there was an around a 76% of the previous day traffic at the same time. Their analysis seemed to show that there was something that happened with regards to BGP. Uh, CoGuard takes it a little bit further. And they did an analysis where they took the Cloudflare information and also combined it with where the um, Rogers Network statement that they had out and came to a conclusion. So, quote from their analysis, adding one and one together, one arrives at a conclusion that there was a scheduled maintenance update on Friday morning, which had unplanned side effects causing routers to malfunction. These routers were responsible for executing BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, which in simple terms tells the internet that Rogers Networks exists or up, to, up and running and how each node can reach them. If you've ever done any networking, particularly on the WAN side, you understand how routing, routing or I guess routing protocols work. Now, they came up with a few impressions, which I thought valid to share today. One was that a rollback was not possible. And this based on that, that they had to disconnect the equipment from the, from the network immediately. So whatever they did as far as changes go, they could not roll back. They also assume that a staged update propagation to reduce the blast radius was not applied because basically it looks like that they just applied something and it just was uncontrolled, so to speak. It's always best to do these on a portion of the network first and then just see how that goes from there. And kind of in combination, their third impression was that updates are done in larger batches instead of many small increments. So 
kind of along the same theory, do a little bit at a time so that you minimize, even if you can't roll back, you minimize the effect. And the last impression or modeling and unit testing of changes at the router level layer may not have been applied. So a very interesting analysis here from, from Cogard. Um, they do have a few conclusions, recommendations for Rogers. One is to model the infrastructure responsible for BGP, capture all configuration files prior to all of this, create a set of checks, which if, if they fail in a certain configuration or combination is present, then these checks can obviously point to that there could be a problem down the road. Identify the areas preventing a good rollback and staging mechanism and, ad and address them. Now, we all know that in change management, one of the tenets is that you have to have a good rollback plan. In fact, most change advisory boards won't approve a change request unless that there is a succinct and verifiable and realistic rollback mechanism, particularly when you're talking about a critical service such as what Rogers provides. And then finally, create ways to model your environment because if you can model the environment, you will have a much better chance of being able to catch these things before they happen and become front page on the internet and on the nightly news and people getting very upset because they have to go to Starbucks in order to do their work. Moving on to something which I thought was actually kind of neat, but not not new on the surface, but it does have a little bit more information, which I thought was, was, was again, kind of cool. Uh, from mm, Vice, hackers say that they can unlock and start Honda cars remotely. Again, there's always been things with regards to key fobs being able to intercept, and then security folks have tried to change that access so that it's less likely to be able to be penetrated. And apparently, uh, this particular tech, dubbed Rolling Pawn, is a serious vulnerability. Basically, the way that these things work is that they have a, what they call a rolling code mechanism. And quoting from the article, which means that, in theory, every time the car owner uses the key fob, it sends a different code to open it. This should make it impossible to capture the code and use it again. But the researchers found that there is a flaw that allows them to roll back the codes and reuse old codes to open the car. Perhaps maybe Rogers should think about hiring those um, criminal hackers who figured out how to do a rollback with Honda codes and they could do rollbacks with regards to network router configurations. Now, to be fair, a Honda spokesman did tell them that the vulnerability found by this group is old news. Not really sure if that's the case and if they've patched it or not, but an interesting article nonetheless. Finally, from InfoSec Magazine, a decent article about the future of cybersecurity certifications. And the actual title of the article is The Future of Cybersecurity Certifications Crossroad. The author starts out by noting that there was a Twitter thread where one particular security professional said that after two decades of maintaining his own certs, the professional argues that continuing professional education, or CPE, credits are becoming increasingly diluted with the certifications themselves offering diminished value. There's a lot of us that think think that, and and actually the problem of certifications has been one in the industry for quite some time. The article goes through a brief history of the certifications. There's a very good quote 
from the Trend Micro Vice President of Research, I believe it is, and his name is Rick Ferguson. He says, a whole acronym industry has emerged that competes to put letters after your name. The ones I was obliged to continue to pay for, I let lapse because I felt I wasn't getting anything in return from the certifying bodies year after year. It began to feel like a mechanism for milking me and thousands of other people. Now, some of you might recall that I talked a little bit about a particular certification that seemed to be more like a training course for virtual CISOs earlier. I don't necessarily mind there being training courses and paying for that, but if you're paying for something that is labeled a certification, I have an issue with that if there isn't at least a certifying body there. And certainly that that certifying body should be able to offer services on top of the certification. I'll have a couple more thoughts about this and also about Mondays in 30 seconds. As always, I want to start off by providing you a little bit of context. And here's context with regards to certifications in my career. My first certifications were in Novell. I was a CNE 3.11 and 3.12, and I believe I was a CNA 4.0, 4.0. This is in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, the CNA is Certified Network Administrator. CNE is Certified Network Engineer. For those of you who weren't around in networking and IT and cybersecurity at the time, Novell was the premier server platform. They virtually owned the market. They had a wonderful tool. Their tool actually had the ability to do other network services like routing, for example. A wonderful platform that they let their market share slip away when Windows NT came out. And it was sort of, for me, like the beginning of the whole certification, um, I guess, like that squirrel wheel or that, that, that hamster wheel, if you will. I guess squirrels don't usually hang out in cages and run on wheels, but hamsters do, <laughs> where you're just constantly like trying to get more and more certifications and all of that. I went through and got a couple of Cisco certifications back in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, and, I, and, and nothing wrong with them. And, and at the time, they were very valuable because it helped to show where you were as far as the progression in your career. So I'm less than 10 years into my career at this point in time. It shows that I am endeavoring to learn more and that there are independent certifying bodies that that acknowledge that and also provide services with that certification. Probably one of the best ones, the certifications that I've ever done, and I wish that this still existed, but it seemed to have kind of petered out in the mid-2000s, was from a group called Pine Mountain Group. And they offered the Certified Net Analyst and Certified Net Architect. They were ahead of their time because they were the first major certification group that actually were industry agnostic. They published a column called On the Wire. They had a nice network guidebook. Their courses were second to none big, big reference manuals. They were a constant presence at Interop in the late 1990s. That's actually how I first um, found them and met uh, the founder, Bill Alderson. And it was a fabulous, fabulous... uh, I don't even think that the uh, CISP 
as far as knowledge and content and the way that it was taught could rival the certified net analyst and net architect. And it was certified because they provided services beyond that. There were very strict uh, methodologies for maintaining that certification. They wanted to keep it very um, very relevant to, to the industry. Now, as certifications went on and people started to focus more on the certifications as opposed to the knowledge, these boot camps started to come out. And that's where I started to see a decline here. And then it became more about, oh, I can... Uh, go to a boot camp, I can get the letters after my name, and then I can get more and more letters. And so you started to see people that were piling letters after their names. And I don't know if the knowledge came along with that, because people who were really good at taking tests and who had decent funds to do that were the ones and the time for it too, whether it be uh, supported by their employer or doing it themselves. They're the ones that seem to be able to put all these letters after their names. And and what value did it actually add? I'm not really sure. Now for me, I kind of stopped for the most part on certifications after the CISSP back in 2007, something like that. Although if there's something that I need to do that's relevant to my job, I will pursue that certification. So recently, in the last few years, um, I became Open Fair certified for being able to provide um, factor analysis of information risk, quantitative risk assessments, and that is certified by the Open Group. And then just recently became a CMMC RP, which is, of course, certified by the CMMC AB, or they call it something different now. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what they changed it to. My point being, though, is that if the if the goal of certifications from the personal side is to get more letters and and have more things on your LinkedIn page, as opposed to learning, then maybe maybe it's not the right way to apply your resources. I can understand that there's a huge competition out there. And unfortunately, these HR, these automated H, uh, human systems, what does AHA stand for? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but long story short, you submit your resume. If you don't have these keywords on here, it gets kicked out automatically. It's it's horrible what we're doing in the industry right now. Um, and And yet on the flip side, and I probably will talk about this at another time, but some people are putting other metrics on their LinkedIn profile, which I don't really quite understand the meaning behind them. And the one that I gave an example to in a recent LinkedIn post was about the try hack me. It's like, I'm in the top 1% of try hack me. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, and, and I don't think that hiring managers know, and I don't think that HR managers know either. So is it relevant to put that up there? It's relevant for, it's relevant from the standpoint that our industry is is showing some serious problems. It's it, it, of matching qualified candidates with positions out there, and we, and we need to do better with it. We we need to we need to um, figure out a way. I've put forth the idea that the CISO has to inject themselves into the hiring process for security folks or delegate it to one on their staff to actually get eyes on a resume first, all resumes coming in, because there could be some very good people out there that they don't have the certifications. Uh, at, in fact, to that point, I'll talk more about this as time goes on, but I'm going to be starting a new series on our, our YouTube channel for my firm. VC so services 
talking about how I got started in information security back in the day and some of my lessons along the way. I haven't done that yet, but that's a little special project I'm going to work on. And then finally, unrelated to any of this, but I felt necessary because I, I did release a very short one-minute video this morning about this topic that's really important to me is that I used to dread Mondays and didn't like coming into work. That was when people actually came into work, uh, but and that's changing again. But, but I get that uh, really bad feeling at the bottom of my stomach because the place where I worked without getting into details, it wasn't, it wasn't right for me. And I wasn't being treated the way that I felt that I should be treated, but I let it get to me. And then finally I got to the point, I don't need to do this anymore. I, I, my time and my career and my life is too valuable. So what did I do? I left. Now, of course, leaving anything is hard, but it's even harder to stay in something which is slowly every day. You get to the point where you don't love what you're doing. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Find find another place. I mean, you could be doing what you love to do in an environment which kind of sucks that love out of you. Life is too short. Don't do that. Don't do that. Go down that path. Take care of yourself, take care of your mental, your mental self and your career self, and just keep moving forward. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and stay secure.